Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's great to have Dr. Seth Gilhan on the podcast. Dr. Gilhan is a licensed psychologist who has written and lectured nationally and internationally on cognitive behavioral therapy and the role of the brain in psychiatric conditions. His books include The CBT Deck, A Mindful Year, 365 Ways to Find Connection in the Sacred and Everyday Life, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Made Simple, and Retrain Your Brain, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy in Seven Weeks. Dr. Gilhan also blogs for Psychology Today and hosts the weekly Think, Act, Be podcast, which features a wide range of conversations about living more fully. He has a clinical practice in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, woohoo, where I was born and raised, (laughs) providing treatment to adults with insomnia, OCD, anxiety, depression, and related conditions. Find him on the web at sethgilhan.com. Hey, Seth, so great to chat with you today. Well, thanks a lot for having me, Scott. I'm looking forward to this. I am so psyched. I, um, uh, I'm expecting you to cure me of every one of those ailments by the end of this podcast chat, as well as well, all the listeners. Yes. <laughs> well, we'll have to figure out what to do with the rest of our time after we do that. Yeah, what do you do when like, you're living your life fully? And then what do you do after that? Well, <laughs> you know, maybe we'll get into some of that today because I yeah. think uh, I just jumped right to the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> my, I mean, my, my feeling is CBT has a lot to offer, no matter where we find ourselves in the depths of despair or if things are going pretty well. Good. Well, I can't wait to get your philosophy and hear everything from your perspective today. I, I know it'll be very enlightening to uh, to our listeners as well as t- as well as to me. So let's start with something that I thought was really interesting that I read about you that you started in academia. I think you were an assistant professor at Penn, correct me if I'm wrong, and then you had some sort of awakening. Could you please talk a little about what that that awakening was? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. So I I guess what what really drew me to psychology was wanting to to be a therapist. So that was my initial kind of entry, and so I did a counseling program for a couple years and was fully intending to just, you know, do a two-year program and then and then treat people clinically, but I really got pulled into the science of the brain and of anxiety and depression, uh, especially cognitive neuroscience. So I decided I wanted to pursue a PhD and deepen my understanding of the brain and of how these treatments, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, actually work. Why it is that they're so effective? So I really went down that road for, gosh, I guess. Uh, a decade or more, uh, I guess from 2001 or so when I started my uh, doctoral program at Penn until 2012 when I left 
uh, my faculty position at Penn to uh, start a, a private practice and to uh, do full-time teaching for a while. So I guess I, 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 I still remember, I think I was, I was riding the bus from my internship back to my classes at George Washington University around 2000 or so, and, and I read an American Psychological Association. Um, what's their uh, what's their main the American journal? Psychologist? Yes, yes, an American Psychologist article about it was by Richie Davidson. Uh, he was he was you know, receiving some uh, some award and and writing kind of a summary of his research, and I was totally pulled into that. It just you know felt so much excitement that we were right on the brink of of understanding exactly how the brain works and being able to use that knowledge to develop better treatments. And over the course of my graduate career, I, I my my feeling came to be that that was not the case, that that the the work I was doing, you know, with with brain scanners and trying to understand how genetics affects brain activity were not translatable into uh, clinical treatments, they weren't making treatments better. They might understand. They might help us to correlate changes in the brain with certain treatments, for example. But it wasn't going to change what I did with someone clinically to understand what was going on in the brain. We certainly didn't know what was happening in individuals' mm. brains. These were group-based studies, group-based differences. So so it was kind of a, I don't know if I had a um, I mean, I did have one kind of epiphany at the end of a yoga class, kind of, kind of as cliche as, as that one does sounds, <laughs> as usually happens. So, you know, lying there in Shavasana at the end of the class, and I just, it just came to me in in an instant, like I can't stay in this position. This is in my my faculty position at Penn. Oh, not the yoga position. <laughs> <laughs> I could have stayed. <laughs> That's what I thought you were saying. <laughs> You're like, I can't stay in the downward facing <laughs> yoga pose, uh, dog dog pose the rest of my life. That was yeah. <laughs> that would have been true. I could have stayed in Shavasana for a lot yeah, longer. Okay, because getting up meant taking a shower and going to work. Gotcha. Right? So I could have gotcha. hung out there. But but yeah, I realized <laughs> I can't stay in this in this faculty position. And and right behind that realization was the recognition. That's exactly right. Of course. Why did I ever think that I could that this was the right fit? Yeah. Because another. I mean, I can I can keep going. I want to I want to give you a chance to jump in here, but no, I but it was, I want to hear this. Yeah, it was a it was a gradual unfolding. I mean, another I guess moment though that stood out was I hadn't gone to classical music concerts for years because you know we had mm-hmm. kids, and then just it didn't really it stopped being a part of our lives. And and then I went to one in suburban Maryland with my in laws one night, mm-hmm. and when the the violin soloist was uh, was playing and it just you know, struck me what a what an amazing thing of beauty that is to create and and I guess in my in my self-focused way I, I then thought what kind of beauty have I added to the world and I thought it's certainly not the the research that I've done it's not adding lines to my CV for publications and book chapters and I, and I was kind of drawing a blank but then what came to me was kind of this I'm going to date myself, but but kind of a Rolodex of faces of people I'd worked with through uh, the awful traumas that they had survived mm. and treating them for PTSD. And and I thought if there's any anything, anything of, of actual value that I've done in this world, it's been in that intimate connection of, of working with people, the, the healing work of therapy and being witness to the uh, to to their um, to their recovery. And so that was another point. I was like, "All right, this is this is not. I'm not living my life though in, in the way that feels most true to who I am." Well, yeah, it sounds like you're a, a clinician through and through, not a uh, research academic solely, or even at all. Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that's I think that's exactly right. And and I think I mean I'm glad I had that experience and I have the background in yeah. clinical science. And I think, and I think probably a lot of people can relate to this when when you're doing something and it's going pretty well, and people are telling you, like, "Oh, you know, this is great, this is exciting. You know, you should, you have a real future here. You can keep doing this." It's really easy to just keep doing that, even if there's a part of us that's saying, "Like, I'm not really sure that this is my destiny." Right. Yeah. And and our destinies can change throughout our lives. 
Yes, that's right. Just about as soon as I feel like I've, yes, this is it, then, yeah, things things start to shift. So now you did your graduate work, was it with Rob Darubis, or was that your postdoc? You know, I actually, I worked with Rob uh, clinically for three years. I did a three-year cognitive, uh, uh, cognitive therapy uh, practicum with him, mm. um, and he was on my dissertation committee, and... Uh, and I was part of his lab for my whole time there, sort of a, a uh, I would sit in on the meetings, but we never actually did any research together. Hmm. Well, I suspect that that's how Aaron Beck knows you. Yes. He's mentioned right. you a couple of times and well, he's a fan of yours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know, it goes in both directions and, yeah. and I mean, more than a fan, he, um, I mean, he, his description of, of cognitive therapy was what, what drew me yeah. to CBT to begin with. I, and again, these moments that stand out, I remember in the, the, I think the Gelman Library at George Washington University, uh, late at night reading an article that he'd written, an interview, uh, where he described this approach that sounded to me so intuitive and and something that, I mean, and so respectful of, of the person, you know, there weren't some secrets here, some esoteric knowledge that the therapist guarded, uh, but, but that these were basic principles that had been around for you know, thousands of years that anyone could understand and apply in their own life. And so, so yeah, I've been, I've been a fan of his really from that moment and, and so much of what, I mean, so much of the book that he said such nice things about, um, it was is it's based on his work. Yeah, for sure. And but you do you do you know you extend it in some meaningful directions, not to sell yourself short. Mm-hmm. And you know I made contact with it. I'm talking about cognitive behavioral therapy made simple. That's the book I'm talking about in particular that yeah. he he recommended. Actually, he rec- we were having a lunch with some other colleagues and stuff, and we're thinking how that should be a, a first year required reading for all incoming college students. Actually. So there was a broader discussion about the use of that book. But then I checked out that book and I read it and I just, it, it was so well, it's so well put together, all these different elements. One element I noticed is a common theme in that, in that book as well as in your work is what some call maybe the third wave of CBT or mindful CBT. Yeah. Um, I saw that as, I really like that add on. <laughs> you know, like I'm a big fan of that add on. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And what's the first and second wave? Yes, yeah, I'd love to. I should mention too that the the cognitive neuroscience work that I ended up doing mm-hmm. at Penn, I, I was working closely with Dr. Martha Farah. She oh, she was my great. supervisor. She's amazing. There. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, she is. She is so. I mean, she you know she's done that that kind of work, and then obviously you know she started out in visual work, and now is doing mm-hmm. neuroethics, and really has defined multiple fields within within cognitive neuroscience. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I came to CBT and mindfulness in that order, you know, initially with cognitive therapy, working a lot with Rob and really focusing on, on how our thoughts affect our behavior and our feelings and, and how central our interpretations of events are to the way we experience reality and into our well-being and uh, into a lot of the conditions that people end up coming to therapy for, like anxiety and depression. So I was really um, focused on cognitive therapy. And, but then I, uh, I did a lot of work in anxiety and, and really got immersed in behavior therapy. So mm-hmm. more of an emphasis on uh, the way that our, our, our thoughts and our feelings are often driven by our behavior. Oh yeah. So uh, there are these intimate connections among thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, uh, and and facing our fears is one of the most effective ways, not only to decrease mm. the fear, but to change our thinking. Like there these, I get a perverse enjoyment out of facing my fears. Is that right? Yeah, I feel like it. Like at this point now, I just go right towards it, and and then like it makes me feel like I've overcome something like big. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when we decide to do that, it's, there's kind of, I feel like there's nothing else that can stop us. If we're determined, like, I'm just going to face my fear, then yeah. what else is there really? Yeah. So, um, 
well said. Very well said. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, but yeah, there is, there is something, um, I mean, there are, there are some studies showing that if you, if you change, if you focus on changing behavior mm. and then you compare that to focusing on changing thoughts about things that people are, are afraid of, some studies find you actually get more, more change in thoughts people have if you change their behavior versus trying to directly change their thoughts. I love it. I love that. I love that about your book. You talk about behavioral activation. I think that's what you're talking about right now, you know, and I, and as a theme as well as, I mean, really like your book has a lot of add-ons, you know, to, (laughs) to the standard CBT model. Like, you know, it's like you level up. Hi everyone. Just wanted to take a quick break and talk about my new book that's coming out April 7th. It's called Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. Really excited to present this book to you all. It it uh, represents the culmination of many many years of hard work and um, and uh, synthesis. What I've been what I've done in this book is I've taken Maslow's classic hierarchy of needs and I've revised it for the twenty first century, I'm trying to bring back humanistic psychology. I think that the field of humanistic psychology in the fifties and sixties really got a lot right about humanity and the creative possibilities of humans, as well as the humanitarian and spiritual possibilities. Really hoping this book can uh, present a vision of humanity that transcends us all and helps us connect deeper with each other, but also help us reach our greatest potential individually and collectively. So if you want to check out this book, you can actually pre-order it right now on Amazon as well as other, there's independent bookstores I think you can pre-order it from. And and then on April 7th, starting April 7th, it should be in bookstores. A lot of people have been wondering throughout the years how they can support me and the Psychology Podcast. And here, here's the time, you know, you're always welcome to uh, contribute money to the podcast, help support it. If you're a long-time listener or even short-time listener, you want to not only support the podcast, but dive deeper into a lot of the concepts and ideas we talk about constantly on this show, this is a a great way to do that by buying this book. So please check the book out and uh, let me know what you think. The aspects aspects of the sort of the mindful combination with the behavioral activation. Now that's a unique combination, I thought, because so much of the CBT has talked about being mindful to your your thinking errors. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the thinking errors, but sometimes changing your behaviors first will automatically change the thinking error. Like the thinking errors can automatically be maybe even quiet. Would you say that's, that's right? Oh yes, yeah. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, and I, and I came to mindfulness third, you know, kind of while I was doing uh, this, the position of the anxiety uh, and yeah. trauma treatment center at Penn. And it initially, you know, I thought of it as, as, you know, as another tool, it's, uh, it's, you know, as you, you said, kind of add on, to, uh, you know, if, if the cognitive work isn't as applicable or as effective for a condition or for a particular person, or if, if you know, like with uh, generalized anxiety, it's mostly about worry. It's not so much about uh, avoidance in such an obvious way as it would be in something like a, a phobia. So I, I found it helpful there, but I also, from my own personal practice with it, found that for myself clinically, I felt like I was I was selling short what the what mindfulness practice really is really has to offer because it it felt like it was a kind of uh, like a hack like here's a here's something else to put in your toolbox but but I think um, but there's I think it can be a lot deeper than that and so I've even since the CBT made simple book I've I've been thinking more about. I mean, because, you know, it is, mindfulness is considered the third wave of CBT, but I kind of treat it as like the third wheel of CBT, like, here's this extra thing if needed. Mm. But I've started to think of it more as oh, what, I, what I'm aiming for is more of a mindfulness-centered CBT, mm. that, that mindfulness and it's not even, I was trying to, to draw it out. I was trying, you know, like, like, a, like the triangle of mm. thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. I was thinking right. cognitive, behavioral, and mindfulness, but... It didn't fit the way I was, the way I was working with it. And what it seems to me to be is actually that the cognitive and behavioral are happening within the context of mindful awareness. 
And so anything that we're doing, uh, any kind of cognitive or behavioral intervention, or just being present ourselves or being with someone in therapy is enriched by approaching it from a, a point of mindfulness, from a, a, a deeply connected place uh, to our, our, just who we are, that kind of connection. I think of mindfulness is just really coming into connection with the truth of, of who each of us is. I love that description of mindfulness. I, I don't think I heard you say what the first and second wave were explicitly. Oh, right. So, oh, sorry. Yeah. So the, so the first wave probably around the, starting in the fifties or so was behavior therapy. Uh-huh. And then I uh, followed in right around the sixties, especially with, with Aaron Beck's work and also mm-hmm. with the work of Albert Ellis and others was cognitive therapy. And then those two were, were integrated kind of as, as both sides realized that they were just closely connected. Like when I learned what was called cognitive therapy, the the first real intervention was behavior monitoring, like activity monitoring and uh, and scheduling activities into a person's day, which is a, a pretty straight behavioral intervention. So the so the treatments, behavioral and cognitive therapies, were already so closely linked that then it became, at least in hindsight, to me coming later, it seemed inevitable that they would be joined into cognitive behavioral therapy. Absolutely. So you have developed this approach, think, act, be. Now, it shouldn't it be act, think, be, based on what we just talked about. <laughs> based on Did the, you get that wrong? <laughs> the, the order, the order there. <laughs> well, it's funny because it does. Um, it's too bad our, our brains can't can't uh, take them all in instantaneously. Right. I mean, simultaneously, you know, because yeah. they are. Um, That's not a sequence. It's not a sequence, okay. no, but it does give that impression that first you think, and then you act, right? And then you can be. Because people but love would, that because people always sit these acronyms and things. People th- expect it to be sequential. That's right. Yeah. Maybe you should yeah. be. Maybe it should be think, act, be integrated, <laughs> like 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 <laughs> dot dot. Does something like synthesized. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you could call it tab. Maybe that's. Uh, if we abbreviate them, yeah. maybe they yeah. they come together quickly. But yeah. but yeah, yeah, and and, and chronologically, I mean, chronologically for me, I guess it was think act B. But I, but really, I think where I I just put it together that way because of the uh, just the way that it so- sounded on my ear. Cool. Well, um, talk a little about the uh, those three components. We didn't, we haven't talked so much about the think one, so maybe we should talk a little about that if you're okay with that. You know, what are some of the uh, core beliefs that might be getting in our way what is and what is a core belief anyway what does that mean right yeah yeah so we don't usually realize it but we're telling ourselves stories all the time yeah stories about kind of what's uh what we think is our reality so you know you and i might be having this conversation and i'm thinking uh, scott's really bored by what i'm saying right now and i'll just think like but that's an observation i've made that's not true See, and so I, <laughs> and I could be mistaken, and you could tell me that, you know, and if I, and I, I could, I could doubt that. I could think oh, Scott's trying not to hurt my feelings, right? We can, right? We can, and and, and again, misinterpret that as oh, yeah. as something like, oh, yeah, you know, Scott's wearing a blue sweater. He doesn't like me. Like these I are blue just hair too today. Do you notice that? I do. Yes. Yes. Again, hair. that looks great. It it uh, and it goes well with your sweater. Thank you. That's I was doing. Was that's what I was doing, going for? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Is it new? The blue hair. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm trying to live my most self-actualized life these days, and in trying to enable others and inspire others to live their most self-actualized life. So I. It's very cool. Why not? Yeah. yeah. I thought of dyeing my my hair blue, but I don't. Know, I have no idea where my hair you is. You dye now. your scalp blue. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone done? I mean, would that be creative? <laughs> Has anyone ever done that? <laughs> I don't know. I could yeah rebrand myself. Think act blue. <laughs> Think act blue scalp. <laughs> or you could but, like you know, dye your beard blue. I don't know. I could. Yeah. Yeah. The hair has to go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, we 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 interpret these these things that we're telling ourselves. We mistake them yeah. for reality. And we get caught up in them. And so, for for in my work, the way I approach it, so much of cognitive therapy really is just noticing that we're telling ourselves stories. Just noticing, not even. I mean, it's 
we, we can get into really kind of uh, being explicit about what some of the alternative explanations are. I mean, an example would be um, if I'm working on a book and I'm thinking to myself, like, oh, this is not going to turn out well. This mm. is, I'm never going to get this written. Like that becomes a story. And if I recognize like, oh, I'm telling myself this story now, then I, I have a chance to question it. Like, oh, okay. All right. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe there's another story. That's true. And I don't have to convince myself of it. I don't have to, to kind of hold myself down until I say mercy and say, okay, I believe, right? I believe it's going to be great. And it's going to be a bestseller. And everybody's going to love it. Mm. I don't have to brainwash myself into trying to believe something that if I'm just not there, but, but just recognizing like, oh, wow, I'm really having a story now about I'm not going to be successful. Mm. Like that's all right. That's a, that's a narrative. It, Is that maybe a core belief? Is that a core belief? So it could be, it could be, it could underlie if that's, so a core belief is when you have a bunch of thoughts that all kind of lead to the same place, okay. like my book's not going to be well received, nobody's going to like my podcast, I'm not going to be able to, to help my, uh, my therapy clients, then those are all, they're, they're probably coming from the same root. Those are all kind of shoots that are coming from something deeper, which is about like, I'm not going to be effective in the world or. I'm not going to be good at what I do. Mm. And maybe there's something deeper than that. Like I'm, there's something about me that's not adequate. That often underlies a lot of it, right? It kind of just a pervasive sense. I'm just no good. Exactly. And that's, that's really, I do find that really heartbreaking. You know, when, when, when stu- even students, you know, come to my office hours with these sorts of things. And I don't think there's anyone who on this earth where that's true, where their the totality of their being is inadequate. Like I don't, Think no. that, that empirically, even objectively, that would could be the case. No, right? no, and I and I agree with you, Scott. I think heartbreaking is exactly the the right word for it because it is it, it is so far from what's true, and yet such a common belief that we get so disconnected from what's true about us that we believe the opposite of what's true that we have no worth versus the fact that I mean if I mean the, the way I see it kind of in, in broader terms is that the universe makes space for us. And I don't think it would if there, if there were zero value to our existence. Yeah, I, I think that's a really a great way to put it. What if based on someone's prior history of evidence, though, they do have evidence for something negative? You know, um, they may be um, overgeneralizing, such as like, uh, which is one of the cognitive uh, thinking errors that you talk about is overgeneralization um, mm-hmm. or, uh, exa- you know, exaggerating things. But let's say you are the type of person, your whole mm-hmm. early life, you got signals from people that you approached that you thought were attractive, that they rejected you. And so you have evidence that you're not attractive to whoever, the kind of people, whether you're a woman trying to approach men or you're a man approaching woman or man, man, woman, woman, or whatever other, you know, turtle to sure. turtle, whatever. I want to include, be inclusive here of everyone. But um, what, what, what do you do if you have that evidence, you know, where, because, you know, part of CBT is like, look at the evidence, tally one side, tally, but what if like the evidence is overwhelming that you are a loser? Now, what do you, you know, I mean, what is that? What do you do with that? Right. Well, this is this is what I really appreciate about CBT is that it's not just power of positive thinking right. kind of stuff. Cause I want to make that point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because people are smarter than that. You know, we see through that. So it's not about telling yourself the opposite. So if you say like I'm a loser, no, I'm amazing. Because people don't. I mean, they they don't buy that for very long because right. then you know something comes along. It, it's fragile. Because then if if anything happens that disconfirms that, then they say, oh, I was wrong. I'm a complete loser. Right. So this is where I think you know the, I mean that where where mindfulness meets cognitive therapy, I think it's so powerful is that we don't have to deny what's true. Mm. We can we can open to all of it. We can open to like all right. I am let's say I'm approaching uh, romantic part potential romantic partners in a certain way, and and I'm getting I keep getting a similar type of rejection. So I could say like well. Uh, I mean, positive thinking would be something like, well, I'm amazing and they just don't appreciate me. I just need to find someone who appreciates me. And maybe that's true. But it could also be that it's something about the person's approach. Like maybe it's useful feedback or something that a person can. Oh, that's can, good. Yeah, you can learn from it. So it's, you know, the answer is either when. Uh, I love that. Either we change our behavior or 
or we change our thoughts. But sometimes the, the, the thoughts are accurate. And then we don't want to, I never want to be in the position as a therapist of trying to convince someone of something that isn't true, if it is true, and if it's useful information. Uh, that framing you just said just totally answered my question. That was, that was so great. Yeah. Also, I think a part of that is also taking responsibility. Because yes. I think that a lot of therapy is, is about taking responsibility. I read um, Ir- Irving Yalom's wonderful book, um, Existential Psychotherapy, one of my favorite books. And he found that the top two factors that were most effective in ther- psychotherapy, the first one was accepting parts of unknown parts of yourself mm-hmm. that maybe you'd cordoned off and accept fully accepting them. And the second one was um, feeling a greater sense of responsibility over your actions and that, that, um, you know, kind of taking ownership over the things. And, and I think that that, it seems like that's important in this situation. It'd be very easy to blame it on others. Say like, you, you know, the expression haters going to hate. I never really liked that expression. <laughs> yes. I actually really don't want to, I don't know if that's a healthy psychological mindset. Every single time someone, you know, criticizes you, you go, oh, haters going to hate. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, sometimes maybe you should be like, huh, what? What what can I if enough people are saying it you know yeah, like yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it's true but <laughs> but but doesn't mean that I that there isn't something useful I can get from it and to be a better person yes yeah no I, I agree completely Scott there's a, a I think a, a kind of a cheap form of self love I, I I think in some areas that you find which is kind of the the, the first part of what you're describing of just you know hate is gonna hate and mm. uh, and it's and there's nothing about you that you should have to change. Uh, you're, you're perfect exactly where you are. I think we, we can be perfect in a sense and yet mm-hmm. still have things that we want to work on. And I think real self-love and self-compassion is being able to open to exactly who we are, even if there are parts of ourselves that we want to change that we're not happy about. How can you be perfect and yet still have things to change? How does that logically go together? I mean, the the, the best that I've I've heard it put is kind of like an acorn where you know an acorn is not complete in the sense of it has a lot of growing to do and yet it's it's perfect like an acorn like what a thing of beauty oh i see i see what you're saying but it's not going to stay an acorn it'll grow it'll be a sapling and it'll be a perfect little sapling but it can't stay a sapling it has to it has to keep growing and changing so you can still be beautiful and still need to change Yes. Yeah. yeah, maybe beautiful is a better a better word for it. I mean, I, I guess because if I was I, perfect, I'd be like, I'm done. <laughs> peace, <laughs> peace. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like don't don't you dare, dare change because you can only yeah. possibly make yourself worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If like I touched anything, <laughs> why would mess with perfection? I, I guess it depends on what we mean by you. Because I when I think of you, I think of that kind of incorruptible part of of what I see as each of us, the deeper part of us that's our mm. I think of as our spirit that is untouched and untainted uh, and undimmed by anything that we can do or experience. I see. I love this uh, spiritual undertones of, of your language, your poetic language. It's, it, it, I like it. It speaks to my poetic sensibilities. So <laughs> I like Thank it. you. I resonate with it a lot. You mentioned you have, a, you have a section in your book on cycling the puck in CBT. Can you talk yes. a little bit about what cycling the puck means? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, that came directly from Rob Derubis. Uh, so he was he was talking about with this um, particular client. We were you know, we had group supervision. We watched videotapes of uh, the, the training um, therapy cases we were doing as uh, as graduate students working under him. And and this I, I forget exactly the, the details of the case, but but there was this idea that that actually may have been a training tape of uh, watching Rob do therapy, where he's working with with his patient and. And kept kind of gently, you know, bringing this idea up in response to what this person was saying, and and you would see it would kind of it wouldn't it wouldn't quite take like the the person would hear it, but it wouldn't really land. And so the the metaphor comes from hockey, which I, I don't really watch hockey, but but the idea is you know if you're uh, you're passing the puck around, you're waiting for an opening, and so you kind of cycle it around, waiting for something to to materialize. Mm. But obviously you don't just you don't just hold on to the puck, right? You have to you have to keep it moving. And so the, the conversation's moving in uh, in the therapy room and, and it comes back around to, you know, here's another another pass. All right, that one didn't quite take. All right, then 
talk about other things and we come back to it. And then in, in the session, it finally landed and you see this kind of this aha moment and, and there's an opening. And, and I think that's true for all of us. There are times where we're, just, we're more receptive to things than other times. And totally. we may have heard it, you know, 50 times, but the 51st, you're like, oh, yeah. like I, I knew that was true, but now I really know it. Now I feel it. It, I resonate with that so much. It's so true. It's so true. My mom has always said that about me. She's like, you won't, you're so stubborn. You won't <laughs> listen until you're ready to listen. Yeah, and she's not wrong. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true for all of us. I think. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> Making me feel yeah. better. Well, I mean, I think there's, um, there. I mean, there, there's a the sort of right time for these things to land. And because and, we have our own, our own understanding of, of things uh, like there was somebody say, and there's this idea of being a spiritual being, having a, 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 a human experience. Mm-hmm. And I'd heard that a bunch of times and I was kind of like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that necessarily, but then something, something clicked in that, that actually, like I, I felt like it, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to describe as something that seemed, seemed, already to be true becomes more true but that that's how it feels it feels like it becomes deeply deeply true maybe it connects with something uh we weren't we weren't ready to receive until that moment i think that's where well that's very existential mm, i think that's part of the you know part of mindfulness practice is experiencing things uh kind of with with fresh eyes as if for the first time and Maybe that's part of what can allow us to open to these things is is not being sort of foreclosed, like, yeah, yeah, I, I know what that's about, but opening to it and and connecting in a different way. So what's your mindfulness practice? Uh, do you uh, sit down with the call map every day or are you like more evolved than that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about more evolved. I I do um I do some gentle yoga. No offense to the call map. I love the call map. I'm just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it, it's it's changed over the years. It started out, uh, and it was just. I think initially I was doing some um, some guided uh, meditations with I think some of John Cabot Zinn's mm. uh, recordings, which I really enjoyed and and have recommended uh, to my clients. And then um, for a number of years, I was doing just silent. Meditation, maybe 15 minutes a day of just sitting, uh, eyes open, actually, mm. focusing on my breath. Um, and then I did more kind of uh, more calming type meditation, especially when I was going through an extended illness and felt like I really needed that deep kind of parasympathetic nervous system activation. Um, and so I wasn't so focused on focusing as much, but more just on on being with the breath and and uh, and relaxing, maybe doing some that were that were guided and had some music in the background. And then I did maybe maybe just before that I did you know Sam Harris from the uh, Waking Up podcast and and multiple books and he has a Waking Up meditation app. I did that one for mm-hmm. for a good while um, and still return to that sometimes. And that's really been instrumental in my understanding of the mind and and the connection of of mindful awareness and meditation to it's kind of our our fundamental experience of consciousness, mm. as best I can understand it. Um, and then, then, then as I, I started to say, it's lately it's more um, uh, kind of moving meditations or, or barely moving meditations, like a kind of um, yin yoga or or bedtime yoga mm. in the evenings. Um, you know, maybe uh, it's really really enjoyable. I do about twenty or thirty minutes um, most nights. My wife and I both do it. So it's kind of a a nice way of being together and and uh, decompressing before bedtime. I love that. Um, sounds like you have some really healthy practices there. Um, oh, I, I saw the core of my eye. You drink it. I was like, that'd be really funny if he was drinking a beer right now. Like, <laughs> like just from a, like I'm from a co- pure comedy perspective, you know? Because like you really have some healthy habits, and you're like. 
<laughs> chugging, <laughs> chugging, <laughs> chugging a beer. <laughs> well, I've got the game on over here, you know. So every now and then, I, yeah. I feel I like just actually. from the like a you know Saturday Night Live perspective, that'd be yes. really funny. But okay, it was water. It was just water in there, right? <laughs> there's no, there's no vodka. <laughs> just water. Okay. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, but it does sound like you have some really healthy uh, practices. And um, what is it about? mindfulness meditation that like why does it why do i feel like a a better kinder human after i've had a 10 minutes of paying attention to my breath why does that happen can you explain this at all uh, i mean my uh my understanding now which which could continue to evolve but is that meditation connects us to our true nature that our nature is to be kind loving connected to others, calm, and that it's it's so much of the thinking and doing that fills our days that takes us away from that place. Mm. And so it doesn't take doesn't take long to come back. It's always there that that core uh, truth of, of who we are, uh, our our essential nature is right there. We can come right back to it. Mm. And it can happen in an instant. So I that's my understanding of it now, why it's why it's so effective and so important for it to be central to uh, to to therapy practice, as I understand it, because it does you know it comes from that it it puts us in that place of truth. So that anything that we it, it's like a, it's a foundation, and so if we if we're if we're in this kind of uncentered, um, you know, self focused, uh, impatient place, we try to build. From there, we're going to build this wonky structure. Mm. But if we come home to ourselves, come back to that uh, that true center, then from there, I think what we build is going to be good. So interesting. Why is our center less uh, motivated by our lower level desires? That's what I'm trying to understand. That I mean, my love of chocolate um, doesn't like is it's real. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't yes. say it's like. Like yes. the real true self doesn't like chocolate. No, I think there is, you know, I, I, I've kind of written, an, I wrote an article for Scientific American kind of criticizing the concept of like the true self, you mm. know, it's all you, but, um, but if it, it kind of refocuses on a particular side of you, that yeah. seems to be your best self, be, be kind of, um, brings out the best in you. And yes. Yeah. Well, and I'm just like, it's, it's just fascinating to me that like attention you, you didn't have to be that way, right? Like it could be like the more you focus attention, the more actually you think about the chocolate, like the chocolate overrides you. Right. And the more of a jerk you become. Yeah. Right. And like no more meditation for you. You're mean enough. Yeah. Yeah. And there, and to be fair, there are those who are class A jerks who gravitate towards mindfulness and do become more mindful in being a jerk. So I don't think it's a panacea, but. I do feel personal. I'm talking about my own lived experience, as they say. Yeah, like, yeah. like I can be when I'm feeling all ADD. I feel like I'm not at my best. Like I'm like I go anywhere. I go to the chocolate. I go to this. I can go. And then I do like ten minutes, and I do feel centered. There, I do feel more centered in a way that I don't feel a pull to make even feel the pressure to make a decision. If right. That, if that yes. makes sense. Yeah. Yes. No, it does. I'll have to read your Scientific American article too. Oh, cool. I, yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. Authenticity I, I mean, under fire, it's called. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Because yeah, really what we're talking about is kind of at the, the frontier of my thinking because I don't I don't know exactly how what I what I consider our our spiritual center, how that relates to the other parts of ourselves. Because I, mm. I agree with you. It's I think it's a kind of I don't know if spiritual hegemony is the right word, but mm-hmm. but we can be too precious with the idea of spirit and you know want to deny everything about the mind and the and the body. Uh, but but I think it's it's more I think what's valuable actually is more of a a, a valuing of, of all the parts of ourselves. Yeah. But I, I guess my the way I came to this was was realizing that our tendency is to get over identified with our minds and our bodies and see those as the totality of who we are. And forget there's a part of ourselves that is that's uh, more than our mind and more than our body, um, mm. and and it does it does seem to be that connecting with that part of ourselves just brings the other parts or can bring the other parts into alignment. 
that then mm-hmm. that then you know we can enjoy the chocolate in a different spirit that it's less of a kind of acquisitive like can't be satisfied kind of way and more of a more of a a willingness to enjoy what's there and then to be okay when it's when it's gone oh absolutely i absolutely agree with that you know we can make decisions like i have dark dark uh, dark side sundays you know where i'm like i get all, all the food i want you know <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> if you do it mindfully i feel like yeah you know, these things can be really great so I, I love what you're saying. And you talk about how you can cultivate more mindfulness. And two things that you mentioned in particular are presence and acceptance. Mm-hmm. Do you mind talking about uh, what just a quick description of uh, or d- definition of what each one means? Yes, yeah. So presence is just focusing our awareness on what we're actually doing rather than, you know, our, our brains want to go into the future and figure out things are going to work out for us or they want to kind of dwell on the past and ruminate on things that have already happened. And so... Mindfulness is about coming into that thin slice that's right in between those two. <laughs> I said you hard. <laughs> <laughs> did it work? <laughs> it did. My whole screen went bluish, <laughs> appropriately enough, a little pulsing heart in the middle. <laughs> okay, I just was wondering if that was going to work. Okay, yeah, it's very cool. Um, and then, and, and for some people, that some people see uh, acceptance as inherent to presence, so we can't truly be present if we're not accepting what, what's happening in the present, that as soon as we start to to wrestle against our, our situation or mm-hmm. to, um, to, to kind of hate it in some way, to struggle mm-hmm. against it, to reject it, then we're, we're no longer present. But, but, uh, but the other component is, is often uh, called acceptance. So just mm-hmm. um, opening to things as they are it doesn't mean that we love them, it doesn't mean that uh, we approve of them. Like if someone else is is treating us badly, accepting that that's happening doesn't mean we just take it. It just means acknowledging that, all right, this person is treating me badly. And then we're in a good place to decide what to do about it. Mm, I love that. Uh, yeah, it doesn't mean Carl Rogers you know, said, I often find the curious paradox is that once I've accepted it, then I can change. Yes. Yeah, yeah I guess it doesn't mean that you approve of it or that you want to keep it forever, you know? No, but you're like this is what's within me. So that really that really is in line with the article I wrote on uh, authenticity under fire and why there's no mm-hmm. such thing as a true self. Because once you think that the true self is only the good bits about you, then you're gonna uh-huh. like not accept all the naughty bits. Uh, right. Yes. I'm all about accepting all the bits. <laughs> you know. And yes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. people do have an authenticity bias. They, if you give them like self-report questionnaires, and you say, "Can you mark off all the aspects, all the adjectives about yourself that are the true you?" The true you is like moral, you know, good, uh, caring, loving. You know, all the other stuff is like, "Oh, that was just me getting drunk Friday night." You know, right? It's like, That's not really me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess this is again. This depends what we mean by me. Oh, there we go. There we go. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I mean, it sounds kind of kind of lawyerly, like like Bill Clinton saying this. Like, what what, what was the word? It was is is depends on what the definition of the word is is or something like that. He was quibbling about some uh, like irregular verb or something. But okay, no, I completely yeah. agree. It's you know, I don't I don't want us to um, yeah. to separate off those parts for ourselves exactly because I think we're we really set ourselves up and 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 others set them up for. Uh, for bad behavior from us if we deny those parts. Like Jordan Peterson, I've, I've heard speak a good bit about, you know, if we deny the darkness in ourselves and, mm-hmm. you know, like if parents, you know, don't recognize that they have a real potential for violence against the kids they love, you know, their own kids, that, that's, that's a, a very dangerous thing to do. Mm-hmm. I guess, so, so when I say that, that, let's say someone beats their kids and I say that's not your true self, I don't mean you didn't actually do that or that's not something you're capable of, hmm. but it's not true to your deeper nature. Oh, there's, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a, there's a truer part of you that uh, that we can align with. How do we know that the, I'm going to play devil's advocate as an, uh, like if an evolutionary psychologist heard what you said. Absolutely. How do we know that the deeper self isn't that primally aggressive, sexual, like, you know, like, like unthinking, like reflexive self. How do we know that's not actually the deeper self from an evolutionary point of view? But then 
it actually requires all these levels of mindfulness and, and consciousness and, and, uh, and cultivating love and kindness meditations in, in order to get in touch with a higher self. Like, how do we know we don't have it backwards when we use the phrase deeper self? Do you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it depends on what our, our prior beliefs are. I don't think there's a, I don't think there can be a proof, you know, in, in, in one direction or the other, but I, I think, um, so where I'm coming, where I came to this from was, and I don't know that he would agree with me, mm. but, um, <clears throat> but Sam Harris had this meditation where he, he, uh, who, who is, you know, definitely an avowed atheist. One one of these one of the lines he had from uh, one of the guided meditations was was something like um, your a consciousness is not in your head your head is in consciousness mm. so the idea being that our our consciousness is is a kind of prior that all our experience is based on and, and derives from mm. and that it that the consciousness is primary mm. and so when I came. When I came to believe that, that was true, then, and I, and I came to see the conscious, consciousness um, mm. being manifested in each of us as something that we <clears throat> we carry to, so to speak, as our spirit. Then, and 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 I believe that that spirit is the truest part of who we are. Then, for me, everything else is kind of built around that, um, and so, mm. so evolution you know even these sort of deep truths about um uh, selection and uh and change over time and um and things that uh, we believe about evolutionary science mm. to me those are uh those are secondary those came after this deeper um existence and truth of conscious consciousness and spirit and i know this is pretty far outside of, of i think what we think of as traditional cognitive behavioral therapy this is more kind oh, of a yeah. world view that i'm talking about <laughs> well you, yeah but you 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 wanted to talk about how there's much more to cbt yes than, than how it's been treated um yes i think in one of the email threads you said uh, you'd like to talk about that so Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad we're getting to it. Me but too. I, I'm trying to understand your point, though. I mean, surely from in the evolutionary point of view, consciousness was like a much, much later arriving thing on the human scene than our drives that we share with oh. other primates and things, right? So, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but it, may, yeah. it depends on what you mean by consciousness. When I was studying cognitive neuroscience, the idea was that consciousness was this emergent property that came from yes came, came later yes came from complexity that's the only yeah yes yeah and so i mean that's a that's a, a type of consciousness and that is a, a sort of self-reflective consciousness and a, okay. and an explicit awareness of of our experience an ability to reflect on that i am the i that is having this experience okay um but i i think what i'm talking about is a different type of of consciousness, not conscious awareness, but just the, um, oh. see, this is where my, uh, well, words fail me, but I think because my knowledge, uh, reaches its limit, um, but it's more, it is, but it's more basic than that. Um, hmm. and it doesn't, so this is, this is beyond science, I think, but it's it's a consciousness that doesn't depend on the brain. Mm. Well, then, then if that's the territory we've gone in, then I can see, I can see, uh, I can see what you're saying. I think, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. at that point, I can say anything. Yeah. If, <laughs> if you change the rules of the game, <laughs> that's right. It's, but uh, no, I, I really, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think about that. How about that? I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna meditate on that for sure. Um, so why isn't uh, waking up a once-and-for-all experience? Well, I mean, it, it, it seems like it'd be really nice if it were, but, it, but I mean, I know for myself I can have this, you know, these moments of, of deep connection and, and a sense of, you know, an awareness of what's really important and you know, letting go of all the BS that tends to cloud our experience and our well-being. And then 10 minutes later, I'm right back in it right back into the all the all the clutter and i mean i think it's 
this doesn't answer the question. I think it's, it, I think it's the human condition, but I think part of that condition is that our, um, there are so many, there are so many forces that are working to put us to sleep. Mm. Like I think our, um, I think social media is exquisitely designed to, uh, for the most part, to uh, to put us to sleep, to mm. uh, to get in the way of being present and connected and aware in a in a, in a useful way. Um, consumerism, in most of its manifestations, I think, is you know fosters a kind of desire that that uh, that puts to sleep our sort of higher awareness, uh, our sense of being um, enough and having enough. Our, our economy runs on being told that we don't. We're not enough. We don't have enough. We have to keep, keep the engine running, keep consuming. Mm, so true. And, uh, but then I think, you know, the out, outside forces aside, I think within ourselves, we have this machinery built in, you know, this, this ego that wants to protect us and yeah. is, you know, is, is constantly pulling our attention to our, our fears mm. and, uh, and, our inadequate, our feeling of inadequacy and insecurity, and trying to, and doing its best to protect us, but in a way that that actually has the opposite effect. Just like, just like any other kind of fear-driven behavior, like in a more, you know, in, in a more obvious type of, um, let's say, a fear of dogs. Hmm. That uh, our our brains tell us dogs are dangerous, so we avoid dogs. But then that just makes us more afraid of them uh, and more likely to be upset when we do see one. Hmm. Who's scared of dogs? Who is scared of dogs? Yeah, I'm not scared of dogs. No, I know. I'm not I'm not uh, scared, scared of dogs, but I'm more afraid of dogs than I used to be after um, uh, knowing of a dog, couple. Dog incident? I, I didn't, but I uh, knew a couple people who got mauled by them. Mm-hmm. So and, and it happens so quickly, and their lives are changed. Mm. Uh, so, but no, I mean, I I, I love dogs myself. I would love to get a dog. Well, now I'm uh. scared of dogs. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave me a fear of dogs I never That's had. Took, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm very suge- suggestible. I want to kind of just end today because you've been so generous with your time oh. on just some ways people we can be kind to ourselves, and I think that forms a really strong part of your work is yeah, how yeah. to be kind to ourselves. And I found that chapter one of the more, one of the a very meaningful chapter for me. So yeah, can you talk about some of those ways? Great. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And maybe I'll, I'll frame this from a kind of think, act, be perspective. This will help me kind of organize the different things that are available. So I think, but I would start, I would start with action. I love mm-hmm. to lead with action. So just doing things that are kind to ourselves and thinking about how we'd want to treat someone if we weren't ourselves. We have this opportunity to be kind to, to this person in the world, you know, this person who's, whose body we inhabit. And so, um, you know, maybe uh, I mean, two things I would offer. One is making ourselves a nicer meal than usual. Mm. I, I used to habitually eat what a, a friend of mine labeled a self-loathing lunch, <laughs> which was something like, uh, like chips and like, like tortilla chips and, and slices of cheese eaten at my desk. I love it. And uh, so, you know, making something that's a little nicer, maybe using a cloth napkin makes it feel a little bit like, like someone took the time to do something nice for you, even though it was just your, your uh, earlier self that day. Yeah. Um, and looking at your schedule for the next day and finding one way to make it, uh, make the day a little nicer for yourself. Maybe it's taking out something that, you don't have to do. It's just going to make your day more stressful than it, uh, than it has to be. Or maybe it's adding a little something like, um, like getting yourself a nice cup of coffee, uh, but just something that, that gives, I mean, it's sort of, it's doubly rewarding because there's the, the feeling as you're doing it, if you're doing something nice for someone. Mm. And then later you're on the receiving end of that. Like, Oh, look at that. Someone packed me a nice lunch. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it was me. Um, and then on the that. think side, uh, you watching out for the types of self-hating thoughts that we have. Um, they can be they can be subtle. Uh, they can even be more kinds of images than thoughts. Mm. 
What but, if you're a narcissist and all your thoughts are like, I'm great. Like, is there a form of CBT for narcissists? Well, there is. That's the reverse. About, Give well, them more negative thoughts about themselves. I mean, maybe more realistic. Because every narcissist that I know and have, have worked with, there's always the flip side. There's always the, 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 the narcissistic thoughts are a cover for uh, really self-hating. Oh my God, that's such a, such a deep point. Yeah, yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, 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 that those thoughts are as low as the positive thoughts are high. Yeah, gotcha. They're trying to find a more stable. Gotcha, yeah. Yeah. So noticing those thoughts and, and again, not not trying to tell ourselves things that are unbelievable, that we're, that we're um, the best person in the world. But, right. um, but, you know, just speaking to ourselves kindly, the way we would speak to a friend yeah. or, you know, a child, someone we care about. And then finally, um, you know, self-care from a B, a B perspective is just, you know, taking time to step out of the thinking and doing mode mm. and, um, and just, as, as the label suggests, just be in our experience. Mm. Uh, maybe it's just, I mean, this is, this feels weird, I think, for most of us, but just sitting, maybe just for a few minutes, doesn't have to be meditation, but just just sitting and, and uh, you know, maybe sitting outside, uh, the weather permits, or uh, sitting in the living room, and, uh, and just seeing what happens. We're so driven, I should be doing something, I should be doing something, and seeing what happens when we, we step out of that mode. Um, and for those who are interested, you know, maybe starting a a, um, a brief meditation practice each day and just seeing what that's like. I I think the the important thing, as far as I'm concerned, with meditation practice is just finding something that works mm. for you. It doesn't have to be you know certain length of time, or eyes open, eyes closed, sitting a certain way. It doesn't even have to be what we think of as meditation, but it's just a way of of being being in the present with a, a, a kind of an enhanced level of openness compared to what we, what we tend to experience. It's beautiful. What a, what a great way to live one's life. And also I think, but I'm trying to think we didn't really, didn't really talk about values, but mm. we've had entire other episodes about that. We've had uh, uh, Hayes. Yes, uh, I saw. Yes. Um, talking about the act approach, which is all about aligning your actions with your values and, um, but you—that's another add-on in your book—is the you you know the values part of it. So we got mindfulness, we got behavioral behavioral activation, we have value, getting in touch with your values, we have being mindful of your cognitive distortions, and and trying to uh, test the evidence for your core beliefs to have a more realistic view. Have I left anything out? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I mean, I I think. Um... I think some of the maybe things that weren't weren't uh, always thought of as CBT, but I think of as as um, I'm seeing are more and more important things like uh, just basic good self care, like diet, exercise, mm. um, you know, some kind of uh, connection to to a feeling of meaning and purpose. Mm. Those bigger life issues, I think, are uh, just as important as anything we might do in the therapy room. I love that. Hey, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been a real pleasure for me and I'm a big fan of your work now. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Yeah, I definitely would encourage uh, listeners to, who haven't already, they probably have already seen them, but to, but there you know, a, a great episode on the dark side uh, oh, recently, good. I think, which, yes, I think uh, for those who want to um, dive deeper there, then yes, and the Steve Hayes uh, episode two that I'd started listening to, I think is, is a, is really, a, I've, so that the values part, um, I, I've been influenced by his work as well. So I think that's really important. And, and I just want to say, I really appreciate your work and all you're doing to bring uh, so many ideas in psychology to your listeners. I think it's, it's really fantastic. And I look forward to continuing to follow you. Me too, Seth. Were you just were you just suggesting that listeners listening to some episodes of my podcast? Yes. Yes. Oh yes, my yes. God! How incredibly generous of you! It should be known that you have a podcast too, that listeners should be hearing. I mean, that was incredibly selfless of you too. In that moment, I'm almost like uh, going to cry because I have, uh-huh. I, I'm touched because I. You very rarely get that. You know, you'll have guests that uh-huh. the, the first chance you have them to talk about themselves, they plug their own thing and you literally just 
just uh, directed them to some of my own podcast episodes. So how incredibly uh-huh. selfless of you. But I should say that you also have a terrific podcast. And um, mm-hmm. I really should, uh, would like to direct uh, people who really liked a lot of the things that you talked about today to go there and um, and also to read your book. You know, there's some things we didn't talk about today that I'll leave as a teaser for those that want to read your book, such as goal setting. I realize we didn't talk about setting the right goals and how do you set the right goals. And those are th- aspects that I think are best for someone to read your book and do that and have a journal like I do and keep a journal and to see keep track of the goals. So thanks again, Seth. Yes, thank you, Scott, very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the podcast on iTunes, and subscribe to the Psychology Podcast YouTube channel, as we're really trying to increase our viewership on YouTube. In fact, many of these episodes are in video format on YouTube, so you'll definitely want to check out that channel. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com.